0: I'm excited to introduce to you uh, Deepak. Um, He is well-prepared to lead us with a PhD in counseling, with uh, uh, done the hard work of book writing, many of which, uh, much of many of the books that we have been helped by. He's also an associate pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, so he brings both a a clinical but also a pastoral uh, knowledge of counseling. Uh, but what I like about Deepak is I ask him today what his kids are doing, and he knows what they're all doing. He has five children, a wonderful wife, and is intimately acquainted with their ways. And so there's that, that not just the clinical and pastoral experience, but he lives these relational dynamics out in the context of both a church and, and a home. Uh, but what I, what I like, the, um, what I love about Deepak, and this is unique to you in terms of his scholarship is textured by his access. Uh, we'll understand him. You know, we live in a world of cultural elites and they're the experts in everything. And they speak to us in ways that are distant and hard to comprehend. And yet we will not have that problem today. We will understand and, and be helped by it. Our relationships are going to be helped. Uh, so I want to thank Brian for organizing this. I know Mary has done a ton of work to get it done, Travis, and folks in the back. Uh, th- say thanks to them. They've served us well. They're modeling for us the gospel. You know, the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. They've given themselves for us. So uh, thank you for them. I just have one word before I invite you back up and pray. Uh, we will have a Q&A time after, I think, each session. And uh, what we'd ask you to do is, if you have a question after, then we're just gonna ask that you raise your hand and stand and Brian and Emily will be bringing the mics to you in the order that you stand. One request that I would make humbly is that you have a question. Uh, Most of us get the order wrong, we usually come up and speak about our answer and then ask a question. So the order is, you ask the question, Deepak gives the answer. if I've offended anybody by that, just please see Brian, okay? (laughs) Deepak, you want to come up and we'll pray? Father, I do thank you. I praise you, Father, for your kindness to us in giving good gifts to your people so that your people might use those good gifts to help us walk in holiness and rightness in all of our relationships. We need it, Lord. We're a broken people. We act out of anger, bitterness, resentment, We forget the promises that you've given to us to give us life and hope in the midst of difficulty and trial. Father, thank you for this dear servant. Use him for your glory, but use him to instruct and lead us well that we might relate to one another well, practicing the one another, sacrificing, serving, forgiving, bearing with one another. God, we want to model heaven by the nature of our relationships with each other father i thank you for this dear brother give him strength and all that he needs we pray this in the name of jesus amen amen thank you tom well good morning you should have a handout
1: there uh, that's going to guide you along the way that'll help you in in, if you're uh, you're a note taker i've got a congregation of neurotic note takers and so if you don't give them an outline, you don't give them some of the references, they'll rebel. Um, so this should help you because it gives you the basics of what we're going to cover this morning in thinking through things. We're going we're gonna to think this morning first. I'm just going to give you a basic intro and then think through the heart. That's really the first hour. Then we're going to think through basic skills like listening, understanding, and asking questions the second hour. And then the third hour, hopefully if we, if we don't run out of time between those first two lessons in the Q&A, then we're going to just think a little bit about being invested in each other's lives and what that looks like in terms of being invested in one another. Well, when I first started thinking through this, I sat down on a Monday morning. Shortly after I had started, a wife from our congregation called me, and she called me with a very broken situation. She was a wreck, and she was hopeless. You, you can hear it in the voice of someone who's in a really hard situation in their life and they're not sure what to do. And, and more so than, you know, just having a bad day when you're not only in a bad season, but you've had several bad years. You enter this place of hopelessness where you don't know where to go or what to do anymore. So that's often when I'm called. <laughs> someone picks up the phone and calls the pastor and says, I need help. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I don't don't know anymore what we can do, myself, my spouse, my family. She said to me, my marriage is beyond fixing. Now that sounds horrible, isn't it? A hopeless Christian almost seems like an oxymoron. Christians are supposed to be filled with hope, And after all, believers are given their life, given the life through Christ, an all-perfect, all-knowing, all-powerful God who died on their behalf to rescue them from the pitfalls and plights of this difficult world. So what do we do? Shouldn't the gospel seem to be enough for us every day? Shouldn't that be enough to save them from the pitfalls and plights? of a difficult world? Well, you'd be surprised by by my answer. My answer is yes and no. Yes, the gospel is the power that saves. Christ came as our Savior, and what Christ did on the cross 2,000 years ago completely changes our outlook in life. His life, His death, His resurrection are what my oldest son would always say is a game changer. (laughs) It radically changes everything that we think And say and do. And so, yes, I can say to that woman whose marriage is a wreck, the gospel can change your life. We're not so desperate in a fallen world that we have to give up everything. But my other answer would be no. No. Every person in this room can testify to the fact that we're not done yet. And Though we've been rescued by the gospel, we face the difficulties of a fallen world. What does sin do to us? Sin corrupts every day of our life. It corrupts everything in our life. It lies, it cheats, it deceives, it fools, it undermines, it laughs, it taunts, it hates, it ruins, it runs, it forgets, it mocks, and the list can go on and on in the ways that sin ruins our life. Now you know this, some of you had a bad night's sleep and you woke up pretty grumpy in the morning. <laughs> some of you in the drive over got into a little tiff with your spouse or one of your children coming here. Some of you had a rough week at work and had a hard conversation with your boss and, and felt angry or frustrated afterwards. Some of you had, had a really hard day on Friday or, or, or Thursday or Wednesday and you weren't really sure what to do. And you came home disappointed or confused. I mean, the list can go on and on about the difficult things that we face in life, but the way sin corrupts and ruins everything in our life. So the first question I want to wrestle with, well, why does this matter? You know, why does this matter for us? Well, you heard my first answer was sin corrupts everything. It messes everything up. It affects our memory. We forget what we should remember, which is the goodness of God and sovereignty over everything, his love for us in Christ. It dumbs us down, so our spiritual acuity is worse. Christians make foolish decisions. I should know I'm a counseling pastor. <laughs> I'm on the front row of seeing a lot of those foolish decisions every week, where Christians say and do things, and you think, that's astounding that sin messes our lives up this much, and it ruins our relationships. One believer makes a a, a mean comment to another believer, says something mean like you're an idiot, could be a husband to a wife, or two roommates, or fellow members of a small group, and whoever it is that said it, it hurts. It hurts when people say mean things. Well, my, my, my second answer to the question, why does this matter? Why are we taking the time? Why are you here on a Saturday morning to talk about relationships? Well, because we get overrun by suffering. Take a look around you, live long enough, and you'll see pain and tears and sorrow and disappointment and sickness and all kinds of difficulties around us. Suffering is hard on us. It shakes us up. Our placid lives and our happy lives morph into mi- a miserable existence. Hurt and pain and crying become a common part of our existence, When we struggle to make sense of the purpose of suffering. And when suffering hits, we don't know what to do, and we assumed happiness is not only our right, but it's to be expected. And no one prepared us to face the suffering, let alone to help us understand what it means to get through not just tomorrow, but years of suffering for some people. Well, because sin and and suffering affects us, we need to know how to fight faith in a fallen world. So the bottom line, why does this matter, is we can't do this on our own. We can't fight through this on our own. To make it through life, we need help from brothers and sisters in Christ. I need you, and you need me. We need each other in order to survive. And in order to get to glory, we are, we are essentially what my boss often calls a salvation cooperative. We're, we're working together to help one another get there. I, I wake up any day, and you know what? You know, first thing in the morning, I'm not a coffee drinker. I could be grumpy. <laughs> and yet, uh, I, I, if, if I get into the Word, and I begin to pray, and then I find ways to begin to serve my daughters, and then serve my oldest son, and then come alongside my wife and work through it, then I come to realize, like, you know what? I can't do this on my own. <laughs> as soon as I begin to serve, it gets the focus off of me. Well, then I go across the street, and I begin working at the church. And in my job, people start showing up. (laughs) People start showing up. There's a 9 o'clock, and a 10 o'clock, and an 11 o'clock appointment with different members who are in need. And I've been surprised at how often, thinking I'm in there to help someone, or I wake up in the morning, and I'm, I'm there to serve my family, I'm surprised how much I need the people who are coming to me for help how much I actually need them in order for me to survive. I'm walking in as the helper, as the person who's here to rescue your troubles. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm Papa Bear. I'm here to help all the kids. Uh, or I'm, I'm Pastor Shepherd. I'm here to help all the members. But you know how many times I've been walking away encouraged by the way the members have ministered to me? So I need you and you need me. I don't know if you approach every day like that, thinking, you know, in, in, uh, you know, I come from Washington, D.C. Last night, for those of you who were there, I joked around a little bit about, I'm, I'm in a city of type A people. <laughs> they, they all have come to D.C. in order to conquer the world. <laughs> they think if they can come to the nation's capital and do some good, they would change the entire country. About a month later, they realized that was wrong. (laughs) But I've been really surprised as I've come along and helped people how much they've begun to minister to me as their pastor, and I've begun to help them to see how desperately they need the church, how much they need the people in their lives, how much they need supernatural community to help them. So I need you, and you need me. It's a basic way in how we're going to move forward and get through this life together. We need each other for spiritual survival. We need to be humble enough to ask others for help so we don't have to fight this battle by ourselves. We need wise counsel from the Word so we can fight the fight of faith. So think about that. That's one of the first things we need to consider. Why does this matter? Because of sin and suffering, but it matters because we can't do this by ourselves. So if you're you're one of these type A or generally independent types, I'm glad you're here (laughs) because we want to reposition your own heart to be able to say, okay, I do need help. I need other people. Or if you're just generally someone who thinks like, oh, you know, I want to pour into other people. I'm here to help and serve the church. And yet realize like, all the people around you are there to help you too. So I need you and you need me. Well, I want to talk a little bit about uh, counseling. You see there in the second half of that page, I want to demystify it a little bit for you. So everybody gets scared of this word counseling. You, you, you hear it and you think, oh, the really hard stuff. <laughs> the, really, the really nasty, difficult things. So when it's a really bad situation, then we call Brian (laughs) because he's the one who we hire to take care of all the really hard things. Well, many of us have been in a position where someone's asked us for counsel. They've asked us for some kind of advice. So the second important question I want to ask is, what does it mean to give counsel to those who are struggling? It can mean a lot of things. It can mean to give advice or to advise It can mean to give your opinion on a subject. It can mean to provide guidance for someone's situation. It can be a recommendation regarding a decision or a course of conduct. It means to speak wisely or unwisely into someone's life. It means to speak comfort or hope or encouragement. Counseling is the act of giving counsel to someone. Now, I looked up in my 1979 Webster's Dictionary a definition of counseling. And you see it right there, professional guidance of the individual using psychological methods. Interesting, isn't that? (laughs) You notice what's in the definition. It's only someone with a professional degree. It's someone who's uh, individually working on their own. And it's someone using psychological methods. Sadly, I think Webster's Dictionary reflects how most Christians think about counseling. It's a professionalized adventure using psychological methods in some kind of professional setting like an office. So in contrast to Webster, I want to offer you a different definition to think about what does it mean when we're talking about counseling and, and, and think especially as Christians. Well, biblical counseling is an opportunity to speak into someone's life using God's wisdom and not your own. Counseling is an opportunity to give advice to someone who asks for it, and what makes counseling different for Christians is that the advice is centered on God's wisdom and not your own. We are not just simply giving our opinion. Rather, we're trying to help people to view their situations from God's perspective. So how is it that we find God's wisdom? Well, of course we find it in God's Word. God's Word and the person of Jesus Christ is the foundational cornerstone on which we as counselors and small group leaders and pastors and fellow church members, on which we provide our advice and encouragement and our comfort. As one of the faculty at CCF said at a recent conference, he said, my job is not to change the person, but to introduce them to the one who can. Our goal is to help a person to grow in their relationship with Christ. That's our fundamental goal as we come alongside and counsel someone who's struggling. To find God's wisdom, we need to be regularly in God's Word ourselves. How how am I going to mine the wells of Scripture and offer it to other people if I haven't put myself in God's Word? Our life should be characterized by a lifestyle of mining God's Word, of of going to the Word and finding everything we can out of it. So, you know, I'm a typical soccer dad. If I weren't here, I'd be Saturday morning on a soccer field. And I loved, as our kids were growing up, you you can imagine this, you've done probably with your own kids. You're out on the field with the younger kids, and what do they do when you have those peeled oranges or tangerines? you got a bag of them. They walk up, and they, they, they take... That half-peel orange and stick it in their mouth. And you know, they walk around smiling with the peel still like exposed, and they're sucking everything they can out of it. Long past it should be in their mouth, they're still sucking on it. Well, you know, that's a little bit like what I want my quiet time to be. Now you think that's an odd picture, isn't it? <laughs> I want to get everything I can out of the word. I do not want a superficial reading of the Word. Most of us kind of breeze through the text as a to-do to move on to the next thing. But no, I want to slow down and get everything I can, and like that orange peel, I want to squeeze everything I can out of it. Because life is in the Word. And if I'm not willing to slow down and take everything I can, I'm passing by what God has given me to sustain me and give me life. So think about that for yourself. Am I running right through it? <laughs> that, for those of you who are taking time to be in the Word, and for those, for, for those of you who are not, I, do I need to put myself in the Word more regularly so that I have something to offer people when they show up in their struggles? Fundamentally, I don't want it to be my advice. So I'm I'm a talker. I'm an extrovert. I've got thousands of words to offer people every day. But I can throw advice at you as if it's like five cents out of my pocket. It's pretty cheap. But I want it to be embedded in the Word. I want it to be grounded in God's Word. I want to give them God's perspective as I speak to them. I want that to be fundamental to what I'm doing. Colossians 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Richly. It, 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 it's, it, it's not superficial, but it's rich. Now, you know, I was at uh, Fairfield uh, this morning, a hotel. I checked out, went to the breakfast, got my, every morning, got my oatmeal. <laughs> uh, got my standard oatmeal, and it's a generic hotel oatmeal. You know, it's fine. It sustains you. Versus, you know, one, one time I was uh, staying with guests and they, got, they, they gave me like, I don't know what they, where they got it, but it was like, is the most amazing oatmeal on the planet. <laughs> and I thought, what did you do? How'd you get this? And it, it's a family, you know, fresh herbs, fresh oats, you know, fresh everything <laughs> make a difference. Well, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. There's a lot of riches in scripture, are you ready to dig and mine it out? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. So that's, a, that's the first part. Flip over to the next page. What I want to do is I want to shift gears and help you think a little bit about the biblical heart. We want to think about this category of the heart because it's fundamental To understanding how to help other people. So a young guy was sitting with me, let's just call him Jonathan because that's actually his name, Um, (laughs) and we were talking together about life. So we were talking about his job and his marriage and the basketball game he played on Saturday and you know uh, uh, if you've ever talked with someone and you have a conversation, imagine if you were watching a video of the conversation that Jonathan and I actually had with each other. He gave me a lot of things about his life, basic facts about his life. We had a good conversation. You know, we talked about a lot of different things. But would you be surprised if I told you that he'd been hiding behind the circumstances of his life when he talked to me? You know what I mean by that he hasn't revealed much about himself when we talked about things. You know, he told me the facts of what happened, what his and wife, his, he and his wife did that week, or he told me the facts about his job, what he was getting done at his job. But what he didn't offer me when we talked, he didn't give me anything more deeper like his heart. He told me what's happening in his life, but he had not said a thing about how he's doing. If I were sitting across from him, I wouldn't ask, how's your job? Or, what'd you do this weekend? Or, what'd you think about the basketball game? I'd ask him, so what really matters to you? What are you worshiping? What are you wrestling with right now? What are you angry at? What made you get up this morning? What are you really honoring and glorifying with your life? You see the change I made? (laughs) The shift I just made? The conversation, the first conversation about the basketball game and what he got done at work what's happening in his marriage told me a lot about his life, but it didn't go very deep. That second set of questions was trying to get underneath the surface and find out what's going on in your heart, Jonathan. What are you worshiping today? What What are you rejoicing in today? Now, you know, knowing Jonathan, if if I asked him some of those questions that I said to you, he'd be a little bit startled. If I said to him, what are you worshiping today? What matters to you? What got you up this morning? He'd be like, whoa, I thought we were talking about the basketball game. (laughs) We don't really have this kind of conversation, buddy. (laughs) And what is he saying to me? He's like, oh, well, I... I'm not ready. I don't know you well enough to give you access to my heart. (laughs) I'm not going to give you the inner stuff just yet. You're still just getting to know me. (laughs) But that's what I want. (laughs) I want to step beyond the circumstances of his life and press into his heart because I want to know the real Jonathan. I want to know really what's going on in his life, not just the circumstances, but what he worships every day. What really matters to Jonathan is what I want to get at. And so when I have these kind of conversations, I'm planning to be, and to use a word, a degree intrusive. <laughs> so many of us live with terminally superficial relationships. We, we live on the surface of things. And there are a lot of people in life who are trapped in these kinds of relationships. And you know, you know, you know what it's like. Um, it, uh, I am um, uh, in, um, in going out on a daddy-daughter date night one night with one of my daughters uh, as I'm driving to the, the destination, and I just said to her, hey, sweetheart, what do you want to do? Just thinking, like, which restaurant do you want to go to? And she said, daddy, I want to sit across the table from you, look into your eyes, and have deep and meaningful conversation. <laughs> Whoa, I wasn't expecting that one. (laughs) (laughs) You know, young girls, women, as they have conversations, what if I watch two ladies getting together at Starbucks, what do they do? They unload their heart. (laughs) They they open up, they know naturally how to do this. (laughs) My daughter from a young age has known how to have these kinds of conversations. And now as a teenager, She, as we were driving to school, she just says, okay, tell me what you're doing. I go through the list and then tell me what you don't like about your day. Uh, Like, oh, okay, that's a little bit more deep. (laughs) Um, So we, you know, we want to have these conversations. Now stick a room full of guys with me. And we're mostly talking about the NFL game from Sunday. (laughs) Unfortunately, men are not as good as going after the heart. A lot of them, their fathers never even taught them how to do this. So you're not surprised when they get together. They they just don't know how to go deeper. I'm going after Jonathan's heart. (laughs) I'm hanging out with him not to just talk about the game. I want to know what he's worshiping in his life. So most people live in terminally superficial relationships and don't know what it means to get beyond the superficial. I want you to think about your conversations in the past week. What were they like? Just think through a few conversations you had this past week. Were you at the more superficial level in engaging people? And how many of those people did you get more on the side of where, what are they worshiping? What do they adore? What are they like in this life? As we get to know people and get involved in their lives, even help them pursue change, this biblical category of the heart becomes vital as we help people if we only address the superficial details and the circumstances of their life, and we don't dig down into the depths of their heart, I think our counsel actively falls short what the Bible encourages us to do. So what do I want to do? I want to go ahead and define this idea of heart and help you think about how this changes the nature of uh, how we think about Relationships. The heart, as we understand it, is not the physical heart. It's not the heart that's pumping blood within me, but it's the spiritual heart. It's the central, most core part of who you are. In several places in Scripture, the Hebrew and Greek words for heart describe being at the center of something. Some have called the heart the command center for our life. So think of Luke 6 or Matthew 12. Out of the overflow of the heart... Jesus says. And in those texts, Jesus talks about words. Out of the overflow of heart, the mouth speaks. But I would say, out of the overflow of heart, the mouth speaks, or we think, we feel, we act, we do. All that flows from my heart. And the heart is the command center. Now, uh, one other way to describe our hearts is the inner person. Uh, uh, just a quote from Paul Tripp in Instruments and Redeemers' Hands. He says, Scripture often defines human beings into two parts, the outer and inner being. The outer person is your physical self. The inner being is your spiritual self. When biblical authors describe what is the inner being, they use the term heart. We come to know humanity's deepest struggles by looking at their hearts. We see the importance of the heart when we look at verses like Proverbs 4.23. Solomon writes, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Well, just as a wellspring is a source of life, so also Solomon says, guard your heart, protect your heart. The heart is the, the source from which the fountain of which all of life springs forth. And so, therefore, protect that heart, because your heart is the fountainhead from which that life springs forth. Now, if you've ever heard someone say the phrase, I want to know the real you. What do they mean by that? I think they're talking about what we're talking about here. They want to get beyond the superficial, and they want to know the essential core of who you are. Solomon writes, As a water reflects a face, so a man's heart reflects a man. Proverbs 27, 19. So much like water that reflects the back of the uh, the reflects back the image of one's face to really get to know someone their character and who they are you need to know their heart. Now think about your own experiences and relationships. You only really get to know someone if you get beyond the basic mundane facts of a situation. So you can ask me about my life and I could tell you things like I was born in 1969. Uh, I grew up in New Jersey. My undergraduate degree is in biology. I'm married for 20 and a half years, and I have five children ages 17 to 8. Well, you know more about me right now, don't you? But you don't know much about what I'm wrestling with today. That was just like the conversation with Jonathan. I could hide behind all those facts and not really give you much of me. But what, 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 do I, what, what do I want to tell you? If you want to get to know me, I could say things like, well, I struggle with pride. Or I'm greedy for my wife's time because I wrestle with how much our kids consume her time. Or I might sound humble, but I wrestle with self-idolatry. Oh, okay, all those statements right there give you a little bit more access to my own heart. Now to be clear, facts are not useless, and some facts are more useful than others, so knowing the fact that someone was abused is more important than their favorite color. But the best facts, the best facts are just the beginning of a breadcrumb trail we can use as we seek to draw out desires, purposes and motivations of the heart. Now you see there at the bottom of the page there, Luke chapter six verses 43 to 45. This is Jesus talking about trees, and this is what our Savior says. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings up good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings up evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks." Verse 45 shows us that Jesus' primary point here is not to give us a botany lesson. You know, this is Jesus talking about trees. Jesus seems to be a botanist here, but he's not talking about trees. What's he doing? He's talking about us. He's talking about human beings. And what can we learn from this text? A couple of principles here. Number one, the principle of recognition. You can learn a lot about a person's life by looking at the fruit of their life. Verse 43, if a tree is good and healthy... It won't bear bad fruit, and if a tree is bad and unhealthy, it won't be able to produce good fruit. In verse 44, then, we see the principle of recognition. We can recognize the health of a tree by its fruit. Jesus tells us there's a relationship between the quality of the fruit and the quality of the tree. Then you see there in verse 45, Jesus tells the audience what he's driving at. You come to understand a person by looking at the overall fruit of his life. Now, what do we mean by fruit? Because you, you think about like apples or oranges, you think, you think in terms of fruit, but what is Jesus talking about when he talks about our life? Well, you know, I, I quoted Luke 6 and Matthew 12. Jesus, when he says this, says, out of the overflow of a heart we speak, Well, I think he's also talking about fruit in terms of our words, our plans, our feelings, our choices, our actions, our relational interactions, our hopes, our dreams. That's the fruit that he's talking about. Or to get even more specific, our financial choices, our parenting, the quality and state of our marriage, the quality and state of our other relationships, our feelings of sorrow and confusion and anger and joy our discipline, or lack of discipline in going through div- devotions, our attendance or lack of attendance in church, our prayer life, and on and on it goes. That's the fruit from, that we can see hanging on the tree. Number two, so where does all the fruit come from? It comes out of the overflow of the heart. Jesus, who made us and knows us perfectly, says, fruit comes from what flows out of our heart. Look at verse 45. For out of the overflow heart, the mouth speaks. Now, we might tend to think that we have control over our words, and it's purely cognitive. And yet, uh, what we find is that your words and choice, your choice of words and your in- instinctual words have a root, and that root is the heart. Have you ever heard someone say something and said, Oh, that seemed to come out of nowhere? <laughs> Or they say, oh no, I didn't really mean what I said. Well, no, actually, you really did mean what you said. Jesus' saying here it's not just something coming out of nowhere, but you did in fact mean what you said. Number three, we can store up good and bad fruits in our hearts. Well, we know from the Bible that we're born into sin and that nobody is righteous, not even one. And as we noted earlier, only God can finally change our hearts. But this passage seems to indicate that we're, we are culpable for what's currently in our hearts. We can play a part in seeking change in what's going on in our hearts. So verse 45, you notice the good that's stored up in the good man's heart. Good seems to be accumulating in the heart. It's a fascinating thought. By this verse alone, we don't know how, but somehow there's an accumulation and a storing taking place of things in your heart. Jesus also indicates our participation in Matthew 26. When he rebukes the Pharisee, he says, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites!' For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. So what might it look like to store up things in your heart? Well, let's give a positive example. Spiritual disciplines. As we mentioned before, the consistency or lack thereof, or spiritual disciplines, shows itself up as the fruit of your heart. If you are consistent in reading and understanding and applying God's word, you are trusting God to store up good in your heart. So Psalm 119, verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. There it is. Even the same language. You're storing up the word. You're storing up the good of the word so that it's there not only for you, but as we said earlier, to give out to other people. Now, if you spent your life pursuing comfort and ease, guess what the overflow will be? Guess what you've stored up? Everything you do and say and think will go through that filter. Your words, how you spend your time, your thoughts, your schedule reflect the primacy of ease and comfort. Number four, we often find ourselves addressing the fruit, but not the root of the tree. Well, why does this matter for our relationships? Oftentimes, we're tempted to address the fruit of a person's life and not their heart. I can still fall into the trap. So, for example, you know, one of my kids is acting out. What do I do? I say, stop hitting your brother. (laughs) And I think the issue is done if I just control their behavior. Or I, as a pastor, you know, I have a couple in front of me, and they're having a hard time with each other. So I give the husband some communication techniques, how to have better conversations with his wife. Well, in the first example, with, with the, the, the bad fruit of my son hitting one of his siblings, I can certainly control his behavior, but that doesn't get at the jealousy experiences with his sibling. Or the second example, with the couple, I can teach a husband how to communicate better, that doesn't get at, though, the bitterness that he's experiencing in that moment towards his spouse. So sure, I can rearrange the chess pieces in anyone's life, but it doesn't get at the deeper issues of the heart that we're talking about here. And unless I'm willing to shoot an arrow at the heart, things are not going to change. So I have to keep the heart as my target as I'm trying to help these people. Now, has, have any of you had bamboo growing in your backyard? Anybody have bamboo growing in your backyard? Yeah, okay. So how does bamboo work? So, for example, if I were to go over to your yard and I were to just yank the bamboo out, is that going to get rid of the bamboo? It's connected where? At the root. Yeah. So a bamboo is a, is a really awkward problem, <laughs> Because you know, I, I, I can do basic weeding. I can get down on the ground, pull out the weeds, make sure I'm getting the roots of the weeds right there as I'm pulling it. But bamboo, no, interestingly, the root might be all the way over in even the neighbor's yard. And it grows through the ground and then shoots up 50 feet over here or 20 feet over here. And so if I pull up the bamboo right here and I don't get to the root, the problem's not going to go away. Well, it's just the same thing. I mean, I can, I can adjust someone's behavior or I can teach them better communication techniques. But if I don't pull up the root, if I don't get at the root of that tree, and so the root being obviously the heart, nothing's going to ultimately change. So, we're going to dig for the heart. We're going to dig for the roots there. And we're going to try and uproot things so that we can help people to experience change. Now, I don't have, I really wish I had this. Maybe one of you can invent it for me. I don't have what I'd call a spiritual x ray. You know what I mean by that? Where you go and you go to, say, like the hospital, and they put you in front of the x ray and they take a picture of your insides, and they give it to the doctor, well, imagine me having a spiritual x-ray. So, Brian comes in to talk to me, you know, he's, he's, he's struggling today with some things, and so I can say, just hold on, Brian, step out, wheel in a spiritual x-ray, flip it on, going, oh, Brian, there's pride in there, look at that. <laughs> and I think I see over the corner there a little bit of selfishness, too. We don't have that, do we? <laughs> So we need to figure out what it means to actually help people and dig out the roots that are there. Now, one of the most fundamental problems is simultaneously our solution. Who and what are we worshiping? We are never worship neutral. In the Bible, if you are worshiping anything but the one true God, the object of worship is most commonly referred to as an idol. Exactly. The first and second commandments explicitly forbid the worship of anyone or anything itself from the Lord alone. In the Old Testament, in particular, we see that the objects of idol worship are inanimate objects made by metal and wood created explicitly for that purpose. However, it is not the object themselves that God is concerned about. He's created the materials, He has the skills of carving and molding things. Uh, What God cares about is why they were created in the first place. He cares about what the hearts of the people are doing. He gave them the ability to mold and shape and create these things. He gave them the skills to do that, but what He cares about is what their heart is doing. So you see there Ezekiel 14 in your handout. You'll notice that there's no reference to a particular object and that the idol actually resides in your heart. Let me read that for you. Some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat down in front of me. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. So I let them inquire of me at all. Should I let them inquire of me at all? Therefore speak to them and tell them. This is what the sovereign Lord says. When any of the Israelites set up idols in their hearts and put a wicked stumbling block before their faces and then go to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer them myself in keeping with their great idolatry. I will do this to recapture the hearts of the people of Israel who have all deserted me for their idols. Therefore, say to the people of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says, repent, turn from your idols. And renounce all your detestable practices. When any of the Israelites or any foreigner residing in Israel separate themselves from me and set up idols in their hearts and put a wicked stumbling block before their faces, and then go to a prophet and inquire of me, I, the Lord, will answer them myself. So let's think about this text for a few minutes. What's the context of these verses? Well, the elders of Israel are coming to God to inquire. Verse 2, you see there, consider the phrase idols of the heart. What does that mean? Well, we know what an idol is. We just talked about it. An idol is anything that we worship other than God. It it gets in the way of a relationship with the Lord. But the interesting phrase there is idols in the heart. What is that? Well, it shows that the idol is foundational to how we operate. If the heart is the command center, it's, it's central to who we are. From the heart, everything flows. If an idol resides in the heart, it's affecting everything. It changes everything and how we do everything, how we see everything, how we think about everything. Now, consider that phrase you see there, put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. What does that mean? Well, these idols are stumbling blocks. They block our ability to see God, just like if you put a hand in front of my face. I can't see you clearly anymore. Well, that idol now begins to get in the way of our relationship with the Lord. It's a stumbling block between me and God. So why does God only answer in keeping with their idolatry? Look at verse 5. I will do this to recapture their hearts of the people of Israel. God deals with their idolatry because He knows it rules their heart. God wants to recapture our hearts, and that's the way He changes people. He doesn't make superficial change, He doesn't just change the circumstances, He doesn't just change their behavior. What do we know It's fundamental to the gospel? He reaches in and changes their heart and turns it upside down and transforms who people are. God fundamentally changes us from inside out. That's why the category of heart matters so much. Because that's what God does. He changes us through our hearts. And when He changes our hearts, it changes our whole life. Idolatry reveals who and what we worship. So just think for a moment. What rules your heart? You know, what are the idols that you're wrestling with? I just want to pause for a moment and just think about that for yourself. And if it helps you, just write one or two things in the margin right there. What are the idols that rule your life? Take time today and figure out how they've been stumbling blocks before your own face and how they're getting in the way of your own relationship with the Lord. Idolatry is dangerous because idols are blinding. They get in the way of us being able to really see and know God, which is why we have to take the time to deal with the idols. We can't be passive about them. They're they're dangerous for us. So Calvin had often said the human heart is an idol factory. We churn out idols all the time. And that's the most frustrating thing about it. I can finally kill an idol, and guess what happens tomorrow? A new one shows up. We're churning out idols each and every day. And as Christians, God is to be first and foremost priority in our life. Idols are anything that gets in the way of God. And any good gift that God gives us, money and work and relationships and material possessions, plans and hopes and dreams, any of these, any of these good things that he's given us in all of creation can be turned into idols. Everything in our life has its own proper weight and importance. And what we do is we assign more value to things than they actually deserve. Now, I want you to picture that we're in a store. Now, this store actually reflects your own heart. It it reflects everything in your life, and your heart has put a certain value to everything in your life. So let's just call them the price tags. You know, if you went through a store, and you have all the price tags there, and, and you're able to see what they're each worth, if I were to go through and notice all the price tags in your own life, I'd see that you've made some things much more important than they deserve. You, you, you put them in an idolatrous proportion in your life. and reflects your heart. And so what, what do we want to do? We want to kill the idols. In, in, in my analogy, that means we're going to go and slash the price tags. Half price sale. <laughs> we want to get these, the, the, these values down because we assign proper weight and importance to things. God assigns proper weight and importance to things. We overvalue things. Or we undervalue things. We we don't deal with things the way God does. What do we need to do? We need to adopt God's perspective. Whatever value God assigns to something in this life, that's the same thing we need to do. We we need to not make things idolatrous in our life. Idols are dangerous because they can control our life, and more specifically, they control our hearts. Psalm 135 shows us that Our our hearts can be controlled, but active worship and pursuit of idols actually deaden our spiritual senses. Parsing out the influence of idols in our hearts is an important step in helping those who we're ministering to. So just like any other form of sin, a believer can and, uh, and should not tolerate idolatry in their life, but should repent of it and turn to Christ in faith. And yet some idolatry is so well ingrained in a person's life that there's going to be an ongoing battle to fight off and reduce the influence of those idols. But we can't, we can't repent like God calls the people to do in Ezekiel 14 of what we're, not, what we're oblivious to and we're not even understanding in our own life. So we, we need to understand the idols in our life in order to be able to turn from them. So how do we know what's going on in our hearts? How do we come to understand, as Luke 6 says in the picture of the trees, that that there's bad fruit flowing from our hearts? While we can learn a lot by watching a person's life, we see and know a person's heart by drawing them out. Proverbs 20, verse 5, The purposes of a man's heart are like deep waters. A man of understanding draws them out. The superficial data of a person's life is, is not that hard to get to, But the deeper motivations, the deeper purposes, the deeper desires of a person's heart, that takes a bit more work. To get to a person's heart, we ask questions that go after depth. So remember the questions I asked earlier? What do you worship? What do you desire? What gets you up in this morning? What rules your life right now? What do you really want out of life right now? What motivates you? Those are the things I'm asking. So I gave some examples there on your handout, out of David Paulson's excellent article called X-Ray Questions. What do you love and hate? What do you want, desire, crave, lust, and wish for? What do you? What desires do you serve and obey? What do you seek, aim for, or pursue? What are your goals and expectations? What makes you tick? What foundation of life, hope, and delight do you drink from? What really matters to you? Where do you find refuge and safety and comfort and escape and pleasure and security? And what or who do you trust? So I, I think the heart variable provides a level of depth, but we need to know how to ask these kinds of questions. You know, we, we don't typically ask these que- kinds of questions in our conversations. And yet part of what we need to do is learn how to shift into heart-oriented conversations. We get away from the facts of a situation and we're willing to dig into people's hearts. Now recognize what I said earlier. Remember when I talked about talking to Jonathan? If I were to ask some of these kind of questions, Jonathan would say, yeah, no. (laughs) That's not what we do in our relationship. But, you know, I can pick any number of other people over here. Sally or Debbie or Jenny, Peter or Tom, who I opened up with them and modeled humility for them, and then I asked them some of these kinds of more deeper, intrusive questions, they would gladly open up. Because they're like a lot of people. They're dying for some kind of heart connection with other people. They're, they're dying for some kind of deeper relational connection with other people because they know what it's like in a technological age to live in a more superficial arena of relationships. And they want more than just that. So Matt and Megan. Uh, Matt, Matt uh, Smethurst uh, was editor at the Gospel Coalition for many years. He's planting a church now in Richmond, Virginia. And uh, uh, Matt and Megan, his wife did premarital counseling with me years ago uh, as they were finishing our internship program. And they had stayed on after they had gotten married, and as husband and wife, they were commuting into Virginia and doing the awkward and difficult commute back into D.C., ha- facing the traffic every day. And so in their drive back, he would often ask his wife, so how is your work today? And he, would say, he said to me one day, yeah, she would rattle off all the facts of what you did that day. He said, I realized, you know, that's not what I really want to know. And so he said to her, tell me about your heart. Oh, what a great question, Matt. What a great question. Well, what did he mean by that? He said, I want to know what's going on below the surface. I want to know what was hard for you today. I want to know what matters to you. I want to know what your joy is right now. I want to know where your greatest delight is. What a great question, Matt. Now, you know, I didn't, when when I heard him say this, I thought, that's a really astute question for a young guy in his 20s. Matt, where did you learn this? Well, at the rehearsal dinner for his wedding, I came to understand Matt is one brother with, it was three or four sisters. (laughs) As soon as I thought that, I thought, ah, now I know where you figured that out. They have trained you quite well to be prepared for marriage. So when, my Lord willing, if my oldest son gets married or my youngest son gets married, at the reception, I'm going to say, you have to say thank you to your sisters. Because <laughs> <laughs> they have prepared you to be a better husband within marriage. Think about your own relationships. Just think, think about who's important in your life. Think about who you're invested in. All of us have superficial relationships. So you think of it in terms of concentric circles. There's those people you don't know nearly as well, but then if you go right to the center where your heart is, there's a few people in that inner circle. There's just a few people who really know you. Here's the challenge for you walking away from today. The people who are in those other layers just out there, they're folks that you you know, you kinda know, you sorta know but you doesn't have these kind of deeper conversations. My challenge to you is to think about any of those relationships that go beyond that inner circle, and can you set the agenda for creating deeper conversations? Now, you might try it on someone this week by asking one of those questions that I laid out for you. And uh, a few of your friends will do just like Jonathan. Wow! Wow! <laughs> which case you can say, oh, well, sorry, I went to a seminar with Dr. Deepak on Saturday, and he told me to do this. <laughs> so just pin the wrap on me. That's uh, totally fine. It'll get you out of the situation in that moment. But there will be a few people who will say, oh, I, I, I'd love to tell you about that. And it'll open up a whole new arena in regards to your relationship with them. So that's my challenge to you. Think about how you can bring more depth to different relationships in your life by pursuing people and pursuing their hearts. So that's the main thing I want to say for the first hour in thinking through both the introduction to counseling and a little bit about our heart, since the heart theology is so fundamental. Any questions you want to ask before we take our first break?
0: You gave that example of Matt coming home and, and, and how's your
1: heart? That's kind of a, a Blair Robinson special. Many of you have probably heard Blair say, how's your heart doing today? Um, how do you do that with your family, with Sarah and the kids? Like when, when you get home from a long day of counseling, what are some of the questions that you ask that have been part of your routines, some of your rhythms? How, how do you do that to draw them out, draw yeah. out their hearts? Yeah, you know, family conversations, because uh, our kids, we have a wider age range of, of, of children, I, uh, we're at a stage where I'm just getting, I'm going to get our kids to talk. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, depending on the age range, they're more interested in the food than having an intimate conversation with the family. Uh, so I, I can ask more provoking questions, but I tend to do that more on one-on-one. In that setting, I'm more, much more likely to have a deeper conversation with a kid and to just say things like, tell me what was the hardest part of your day. And that will give me an avenue in. Because then right after they tell me about that, I said, why was it so hard? It goes from like, well, a certain teacher, I really like, I hate being in their class. Well, why do you hate being in their class? Because they're overbearing, they give us too too many assignments, and I get too stressed out. Oh, okay, that's getting a little bit more of your heart onto the table for us. Um, You know, why question is always the golden question. I don't want to always ask why I want to give any infinite variety of how to ask why there's a lot of different ways to say, which is where David's article x-ray questions gives you a thousand ways to ask that same kind of why and go after the kind of heart.
0: How do you set yourself up for, um, being able to have these conversations and ask these questions with non believers?
1: Yeah. Uh, that's a, a, and tell me your name. Jaden. Um, yeah, uh, I, I am trying to pursue depth of relationship with non-believers just as I am with believers. I mean, because I can say to a non-believer, like, what matters to you? <laughs> like, what got you up this morning? I have to be more careful with kind of the Christianese when I'm talking to them, but I can say, you know, "What what's the most important thing in your life right now? <laughs> and then I ask them, why? <laughs> and and th- that same thing applies because Every non-Christian is an image-bearer with a heart, with a spiritual heart, and they're worshiping something. So I think this is, this is useful in terms of our evangelism, if we get a concept of what the heart is, to get to know people and get them to open up. And, and, and a doctrine of common grace allows me to be able to have wonderful relationships with non-Christians uh, and ha- have, have fruitful conversations, and what a wonderful way to evangelize <laughs> not just simply rush in, give them the gospel, and get out, but relational evangelism, get in there, and who's more prone to hear me out? Someone who we've actually made that deeper heart connection, where we're able to share life. And I'm able to be really honest, and I'm going to hold back all the things that matter to me, even better for our non-Christian relationship, relationship with a non-Christian, for unbeliever to know what matters to me, too, but for me to be patient and loving and ask those questions and hear them out. So that's a basic thing. I'd say use the same kind of questions. Just be careful about the Christian needs and be thoughtful about how you ask it. So at any family gathering, I'm happy to engage all the non-Christian family members that are there. And if the Lord provides us to get beyond, because I hate family gathering in some sense, because we're at that superficial level. It's just really hard to get to the deeper level. I much prefer taking a family member out to breakfast because then I can have a much more intimate conversation with them and ask exactly these kinds of questions. But you know, I, I kind of have a, uh, a reputation of being willing to pull out the intrusive questions no matter where I am.
0: <laughs>
1: so at our dinner table, the kids will joke around. They'll ask sometimes at dinner like, Dad, how many people did you make cry today? <laughs> Uh, only two people. It's not too bad for today. Right, kids? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. Any other questions?
0: So in your example with Jonathan, where you asked a question and he sort of...
1: Pulled back? Yep.
0: So what do you do at that point? Are you going to try to pursue him more? Or are you going to explain that you want a deeper relationship or
1: to talk about deeper things? Or, I mean, how do you proceed at that point? Yeah, and tell me your name. Susie. Susie. Yeah, great question, Susie. Yeah, I, I think it's all of the above. So on the one hand, like if Jonathan, if it's clear, uh, my, myself as a mentor and discipler, knowing his life, that he's just not ready to go there yet for any number of reasons, then I'm just going to stay a part of his life. Uh, I'm just going to be committed. Know I'm, I want him to know I'm, in, I'm here to be invested and be a part of his life, to engage him, to be be, be a, a caring and loving, older, godly figure in his life, and, and pray for the Lord to open up the door. Because oftentimes, whether, whether I, I expect it or not, um, either life circumstances bring him back in the door, asking, having a deeper conversation, and that could be a change of circumstances in life. He gets a new job. He meets a girl. <laughs> now he wants to talk about hard things. <laughs> or suffering brings him back in the door you know, he gets a diagnosis of something that he never expected. Oh man, suffering opens up the heart in ways that a lot of things in life never does. Uh, So if I'm patient on the one hand, on the other hand, I could say, hey man, I'm here and I love you, and uh, I I, I really need you to open up. I really need you to be honest with me about what you're worshiping, and if you're not sure what I mean, I'll be patient, and we'll work through this, but I want to help teach you. And it's not unusual for me to have that conversation. A guy said, well, nobody's ever taught me how to do this before. <laughs> there are a lot of people who don't have much self-awareness of their own heart. Nobody's ever gone there with them. So they're, they're not really sure how to get there. So I want to be real patient. A lot of times it's not out of rebellion. It's actually out of ignorance. And they just need, uh, they need help in knowing how to go there. Uh, which is where, uh, what are counselors? Profession, professional question askers. So I can ask the questions that draw someone out if they're, they're willing to be humble and let me work with them.
0: I'm Nathan. Um, do you see self-disclosure as a way to open up someone and to create kind of a dialogue with them? Or um, where would you be careful using self-disclosure?
1: Uh, Yes, certainly. And you're talking about, Nathan, the person opening up about their life, what I've been talking about in this, This, that kind of self-disclosure. Yeah, I I do think, um, because self-disclosure is essentially saying, I'm describing to you the deeper motivations, desires, and dreams that dwell within my heart. I'm offering it to them. So yes, I think a lot of people in life are looking for that kind of deeper heart connection. I mean, this is what Hollywood writes about all the time. (laughs) This is why romance novels end up being bestsellers (laughs) because people want these kind of deeper relational connections. Um, So yeah, I think that's important, but what's the extent of confidentiality and parameters around it? Yeah, we have to be really careful stewards of people's hearts. So if I go off and then tell four other people about what that person just disclosed to me, I I will have actually betrayed their confidence and made it harder for them to open up, especially if they hear that I'm talking about them like that. So uh, I have to to be a careful steward of people's lives when they open up to me. And we're going to talk about, if we get to it, if we have time, in the very last session, I'm going to talk about confidentiality and how to think about that within a congregation. But a basic part of supernatural community is being willing to get into other people's lives and earnestly and honestly open up to one another, be engaged with one another in each other's lives. Okay, let's pause there and take a five-minute break so we can keep going. And I'll be here all morning, so we'll keep getting to have chances to ask questions. So if you want, it's uh, 10.15 right now, so let's be back in our seats at 10.20.